Hello and welcome to Beyond the Page, a Life is Story podcast. I'm Josh Olds, and today I'm talking with Reverend Heidi Newmark. Heidi is the pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in New York City in downtown Manhattan, and she runs a shelter for homeless LGBTQIA youth. Her recent book is Sanctuary, Being Christian in the Wake of Trump. Uh, Heidi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Now, I, I want to start by acknowledging the elephant in the room. Uh, we're recording this on the morning of November 6th. It's the Friday after the end of the 2020 presidential election, and uh, we still do not have any definitive results, and that is because the, the word end is very nebulous uh, this year in terms of how long the count is taking and in terms of when... Uh, absentee ballots and provisional ballots and military ballots can be counted. Um, this is not really a norm for U.S. elections. And by the time this episode goes live and by the time that my listeners are listening to it, uh, we hope to have a, a definitive result. I'm not sure that we will. So if you hear us talk about the future in relation to the presidency, in relation to Donald Trump, as if it's an uncertain, uh, that's that's why. And, and that sort of leads me to the first question, Reverend Newmark. Your book is subtitled Being Christian in the Wake of Trump. Do you feel like any of what you wrote changes if he remains in office for four more years? I, Not really. I, I wrote uh, – I titled it In the Wake of Trump and with the sense that um, – that that's true. We we are that that would be true whether Trump is president for four more years or not. I don't think that the. I think what Trump hasn't invented any of the divisions and divisiveness and violence against people that that I see in our nation today. I mean, obviously, Trump didn't invent white supremacy or racism or homophobia or you know, um, xenophobia, misogyny. But what Trump does is, um, you know, make, <clears throat> he doesn't try to cover it over. He, he exploits, he exploits what's already there. Now that, that creates a level of danger. And I do think that if Trump is president for four more years, the level of danger for vulnerable people um, of death and violence will will rise and that is a difference it will just become worse but it's already it was here before trump it's clearly here even if trump is voted out and and that means there's a lot of work for us to do those of us who don't uh, uh, see the world like that mm -hmm. i think that's so true that this this election cycle um, even though it appears that, that Trump will probably not win, uh, it has become obvious that in terms of a large portion of the culture, uh, his style of politics has won. Uh, that Trumpism and everything that it entails seems to be here to stay uh, in American life. And, and that makes your book very important because it your book shows us a different way of living and a different way of being. Uh, you very much set up your book as uh, your ministry and your church 
uh, and the work that they're doing as a contrast to the words and actions of the 45th president. Uh, this book is about what you were already doing before Donald Trump, what you have been doing during his leadership, what you will be doing after his leadership. Why, why choose to tie this book specifically to the 45th president in that light? Well, as I was, I didn't, I didn't start out doing that, but I noticed that as I was writing, as I was preaching, as I was living, um, the, you know, Trump kind of loomed over it in the, in the years that I was writing in a, in a larger than life way, kind of representing uh, so much that is antithetical to the gospel. Um, and so it just, because it was so much in my mind, it, it found its way as part of the pattern of the book. But as you say, the, the stories and the stories in the book, uh, from this community of faith in this larger community were going on before Trump, during Trump, and, and will continue on perhaps with even, you know, greater urgency after Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go back to closer to the beginning of your own personal story. How did you come to be involved in this work towards social justice? It's interesting, I, and I think this is a, this is important for the church today. That um, especially, you know, white middle the white middle class churches. Um, uh, that's the church I grew up in, a, a white middle class suburban church, and and that church really shaped me to um, connect the gospel with social justice. That that they kind of planted seeds, and then. Uh, and then my life experience uh, pushed me in that direction. Uh, I went to seminary in Argentina under the military dictatorship for a year and a half. Uh, that that was a very formative experience for me. And then I also think um, kind of under the surface, this is more of a mystical thing, but I discovered not less than 10 years ago that my father was uh, who came to the United States in 1938 as Lutheran, but um, he, his family was German, a family of German Jews, and um, my grandparents sent him here to escape Hitler. They were then deported. My grandfather was murdered by the Nazis, and I, I started to think that, you know, I, I didn't hear the cries of my ancestors. I didn't even know they were crying out, and many died because they were all German Jews. Uh, but I feel like they have spoken to me through the voices I do hear. Um, so, you know, that's kind of a more, I suppose, mystical part of it. Uh, but I do think that that has, you know, why does one move in one direction rather than another, hear some voices rather than others? It, it is a bit of a mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to me about how you, you, you've been a pastor for many years, and um, 
I don't know how recently. I don't know if it says in the book. Um, but you're now the pastor of Trinity Lutheran in New York City. How did you come to that position in that particular church? Well, I had been a pastor for almost 20 years in the South Bronx. I, I was very happy there. Uh, I I always I never accept, accepted um, offers to to consider moving. And then during my I had a sabbatical where I was working on a different book. I came to this church, and the pastor had had left, and the gospel that day was Jesus calling Peter to get out of his boat, and I just heard Heidi get out of your boat, and that could mean many things, but to me it meant to be to that I might have to leave the church transfiguration where I was in the Bronx, but I kind of put it out of my head, and then. A couple of months later, our bishop asked me to consider um, being a candidate at this church. And normally I would have said no, but because of that experience, I felt I have to, I have to be open to this. And at the same time, um, after 9-11, a priest friend of mine uh, invited me to join him at Ground Zero Blessing Body Parts. And it gave me such a deep sense of the dismemberment of our city and nation and churches uh, and wanting to be, you know, then there was a big movement of um, the memorial, which is now there, of course, at Ground Zero. But before that happened, all the architectural plans around that. And I was really drawn to the human architecture of the city and how people can fit together and come together you know, in what King called beloved community. And because this church, Trinity, where I am, is in a really intensely diverse part of the city, that 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 seemed like a really, I, I felt more called, that contributed to my feeling called here, besides that experience I had of Heidi, get out of your boat. So in the end, um, I, I came here. Mm-hmm. I felt called here, and I was called here. The church, you you describe it so well in the book, Um, is it really, what I kept thinking about as I was reading through this book is is where uh, Paul talks about us being ambassadors for Christ, which makes me feel like the church is an embassy uh, amid, you know, an embassy of heaven in the world. So often... um, where where I have lived the past seven years of my life, I recently moved, uh, but I, I lived in, in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, and the South, the American South, is the land of the megachurch. And a lot of the megachurches are set apart from the communities. They're kind of out in the suburbs, kind of out away. Uh, you'll get smaller churches, of course, that are that are in the neighborhoods. But there, th- this here really made me see the contrast between um, churches that are sort of separate from neighborhoods and churches that are deeply, deeply invested and rooted and connected to neighborhoods, especially uh, urban neighborhoods, where it's like this church is really a lifeline for you know, just the city block, uh, because of the population is the population density is so great. And as someone who has always lived in a more rural, uh, area growing up and then sort of, um, 
in the American South for most of my adult years, that that inner city experience isn't something that I that I really had a lot of. And as you describe the the role of the church directly in the community and how it can directly affect the community because of the church's location within that community, what to you when you know when you came to this church, it wasn't just coming to the church, but it was coming to that diverse community. How do you how do you in, in a in a community where m- you know many people and people groups and cultures are are kind of entrenched like they've been there, how do you come in as a white person and say I'm going to be a leader in this now? Uh, because that, that's something that I feel like I've struggled with in my personal ministry is that I'm willing, I would love to help, uh, but I want to be very careful that I don't just come in and take over without a respect and a knowledge of the culture that's already there. Yes, so I, I completely agree with that. That um, coming in as, as a white savior is a uh, unhelpful, more and more unhelpful if it was ever helpful and and dangerous. I think I think what's important more than I mean, yes, a pastor's a leader, but one way to be a leader is by um stepping back and nurturing and um lifting up the leadership of others. Uh, one of one of the things that I thought was important here and that people uh responded to and when I came the composition of our church council which is the leadership group of the church was about 80% white and 20% not white and now it's about 90% not white and 10% white so that that was that was very important it was, it was very important in terms of worship that if I'm a white woman, um, the other worship leaders should should be, you know, not white. Um, our director of music is a black queer uh, now. That wasn't true before I came. No, so within the church, I think we have we have to be. Um, it's very important to make those changes of leadership within the church. And in terms of the wider community, um, not 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 try to um, be the leader, but to join with the leadership of others who are who are in the community, and starting out by um, getting to know people, listening to people, seeing um, seeing what others are doing, and seeing how we can collaborate. Mm-hmm. The heart of the book. Uh for me was really the term sanctuary and how much the physical location of the church was being used for justice work. Um, How can Mm -hmm. the church better utilize their facilities to be more than just gathering places on a Sunday? Well, here, and and I'll speak to here and then Mm -hmm. more widely, um, you know, Real estate. I mean, real estate in New York is such a valuable commodity, 
every square foot is, you know, has a price tag on it. And so if a church has a, a, a little piece of Manhattan real estate and, and the piece we have is quite small, how do we use it? Um, and of course, you know, it's, it's built on native land. Um, how, how, how do we use it uh, for those who are most being pushed off of out of the real estate uh, who have, who have, who have no space or who are being pushed out of the space? How, how does the church kind of reverse that, which to me um, is one of the messages of, of the gospels. And um, I mean, even the, the mustard seed, you know, the little, the little bush that, um, that provides nurture for many. Uh, so that, that, that's a part of our uh, missional understanding now, in places, for instance, um, uh, well, my son married our intern from last uh, two years ago, uh, and so she received a call in Montana, in Libby, Montana, population 2,000. So let me tell you, Libby, Montana, population 2,000, it's hard to find a location <laughs> that's more different than the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And that church um, called her a young woman uh, because they, you know, they, they want to, they want to see how they can use, how they have, they can be a different kind of presence. And they have a lot of um, empty space where they, that used to be filled with children's Sunday school and, um, and other, you know, other church activities, large, a large youth room. And, you know, this was before the pandemic, but that no longer existed in a church. They hardly had any children or youth. Now, of course, because of the pandemic, that has limited what can be done right now. But I think part of the, the pastoral imagination and the imagination of that congregation is um, to think about just as we would in Manhattan. Uh, why are we here? What is our calling in this place? Um, are there, you know, the, the, I, if you're going to reach out to people, you don't want to just reach out to people who are already active in some other church. Who, who's missing? Who's missing in, in this space? Who, are there, are there any, people who need sanctuary in Libby, Montana. I mean, I, I, I don't know the answer to those questions because I'm not in Libby, Montana, but I think, well, I think we can often, um, one of the images, I really like the, the, the lost sheep, the 99. Um, and one of the ways that kind of confronts me is it's really easy and certainly true for myself as a pastor to get caught up in the demands of the 99 because they're, you know, making noise right in your face so that you don't even hear um, the, the sheep that's crying out in the wilderness. I mean, you don't even hear it. So I think we have to be wherever our churches are located, very intentional about, you know, who are we not? Is there, are there voices we're not hearing and how can we become better listeners? Uh, and that may impact 
how our space is inhabited. Mm. Particularly for the space in your church, uh, it has become a a shelter for homeless uh, LGBTQIA plus youth. How did <clears throat> excuse me? How did how did that start, and what has that experience been like for you and your church? Yes, um, and I'll also say there's crossover there in terms of um, refugees. We have young people in our shelter from Mexico, um, Jamaica, people who are um, seeking asylum because of because of their orientation or gender identification. They, they've been threatened. Um, some had their lives threatened. And so it's kind of our immigration sense of sanctuary and uh, the shelter are also connected. Uh, the shelter began about 13 years ago and uh, it, it was a slow process. Um, it actually was a journalist. The journalist wrote an article on Pride Sunday, which is the last Sunday of June in Manhattan, in the New York Times about, I think it was called something like No Pride Here, that as it became more acceptable in the media and in general to come out, um, more young people were coming out at a younger age and then more were being rejected by their families. Often, uh, and this is our, our reality here, in almost every case for religious reasons. And the article was, the article was kind of taking the, the gay community to task and saying, okay, we have this big parade, this big celebration, but what about these, these young people in the shadows and it, the, the line in it that just shocked me was that there were about a dozen beds in New York City dedicated to this particular population. And I'm thinking, okay, maybe in Libby, Montana, but a dozen a dozen beds, it just seemed, you know, impossible. And that in regular shelters, even youth shelters, uh, the staff was not properly trained. Um, queer young people were targeted for harassment, even I've talked to a number who were urinated on while they slept. Um, and so that, that just made me aware of this situation. It was a journalist, really, who made me aware. And I shared that with the congregation. Um, there was a lot, and which includes quite a few queer people. And there was a big desire to respond to this somehow and also a sense of responsibility as a church that religious institutions have caused this problem, actually. And we have a responsibility to do something about it. But at the time, we just felt we're too small. You know, sometimes we look at the mega churches, or I look at mega churches with a little jealousy uh, in my bad days, like, well, they seem to have all the space and all the resources and you know, uh, but in the end, we were able to do it uh, because it, you know, we were thinking we can't do it with a little W. But as we, again, joined with others, other people, so many people who make it possible, who contribute to make it possible for us to have the shelter, you know, we became we in a, in a big sense. And uh yeah, and we've been able to do it for 13 years. And in fact, now, in the normally, the shelter is a night shelter. It opens in the evening. Um, sometimes there's exceptions for special things or special weather problems. But it usually opens before dinner, and 
and uh, people leave after breakfast to do to go to school, to go to work, to do an internship, to do. But then the pandemic hit, and since mid March, uh, we've been open 24/7, and I'm really proud of our our staff and and the young people in the shelter because when when the things were really terrible here in New York, um, you know they hardly could could go out for their own safety and we're just together 24 seven. It's not easy, <laughs> um, but it's been, it's been really important thing to do. And amazingly we've been, we, we never thought it, of course, we, we never thought it was going to go on this long, but even today, um, although a few jobs have opened back up, like the, uh, some of the people in school, um, in high school, or college, they're all there. Everything's online, um, so we're still open twenty four seven. I was in in a in a location where the the physicality, like the, the the sanctuary, is so important. We've had in this country so many different voices that are wanting a you know return to in person worship a return to sort of a normal church life. I know that the, the church that uh, I was pastoring in Oklahoma before I moved, uh, we spent, you know, a, a few months um, out of out of the 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 church building um, and they're only now returning back to some in person meetings. But it's been a very it's been a very contentious thing among some Christians to say, you know, no, we're not going to meet outdoors. No, we're not going to adhere to um, the city or state health requirements regarding the number of people who are gathering. Um, for you and your church, when because the sanctuary is so important, and I, and I think that for you. I can I can probably accurately say the sanctuary is maybe important for different reasons. Um, how how has your ministry shifted to adapt to those limitations? Um, for you, it seems like you've had an increased opportunity to share the gospel and to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Well, we had an increased opportunity in terms of um, in terms of our shelter, where it went from overnight. To 24/7. Partly that was po- it's a shared space, so partly that was possible because nothing else was hap- has been happening in the building. We were about we were seven months with um, without being able to gather in the space here for wor- in our sanctuary for worship. We've had three Sundays now of um, coming for in-person worship, but you know with a lot of restrictions and in a different way. Um, I think in terms of people resisting that, you know, here in New York, we were hit so hard with um, the coronavirus so early on where, I mean, it was constant. I mean, you just like constantly were hearing sirens uh, of people being taken to hospitals, constantly helicopters transporting people to where they could from one hospital to another where there was a ventilator um so many people dying you know it that 
that touched everybody. And people, you know, knowing people uh, who were dying, who died, people in the congregation who died, um, that that there 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 was not there there has not been resistance here that there is in some parts of the country to wearing masks or um, to recognizing the need to protect one another and be safe. So that it hasn't been that controversial. I'd say there, it's not, but I don't want to make it sound like there's no controversy. For instance, our understanding um, from the best science is, is that you shouldn't sing in church, that singing is, uh, is really, even with masks on. And, I, you know, that's probably the most, uh, one of the most difficult things. Um, and everybody doesn't quite get, get that. Why? Uh, but there's no big outcry about it uh, because I think people experienced so much devastation. It wasn't just something on the news happening somewhere else. It was happening to your neighbor. So I think people take the risk a lot more seriously and are willing to make adjustments um, to deal with that. Mm. You structure your book around the church's liturgical calendar and, and, and holy days. Uh, is your hope that a reader will come to each passage on those holy days, or what was the intention of that particular structure? Um, I would say two things. I mean, it's, it's how I see the world. But I hope that through the, the arc of the seasons of the church year, um, one thing I hope to show is how the seasons – maybe for people for whom they're not so important as they have been for me, how these, how these seasons in the church year can breathe life into the kind of difficult season we're living through, but also how the season, the particular season that we are living through inform, um, inform the liturgy of the church, inform the seasons of the church year. So it kind of, goes back and forth, the seasons of the church year can infuse a, a kind of breath of, of eternity into our daily lives, but also what we're experiencing politically, socially, economically, you know, in our lives can impact the way that we mark the seasons of the church year. And it's something that we do, we do in our sanctuary. Uh, so it's, it, 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 um, it is both a place of eternal um, truth and life, but it's also a place that is impacted by everything that's going on in our world today. Mm -hmm. um, we'll make this the, the last question for you. Uh, your book is just filled with so many different stories and connections. And uh, if, if a reader could only, you know, just take one of those one of those principles that we see that, that you've lived out and that you're writing about. What do you think is the most important thing for a reader to take away within your book? My hope is that the most important my hope is that people would take away um, the embodiment of hope that that there's a lot that can leave us despairing or cynical or 
just uh, I heard someone the other day say I can't take this all, all I'm gonna all I can do is just focus on you know my family and I can't deal with anything else and that, that's totally understandable and I also think that that we should focus on our families um, but um, but not 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 shut the door and and forget everything else else that's going on one of the favorite things that um, some people said about my book what was one of my favorite things was it it was about some very hard things but it was hopeful and I feel like if hope doesn't address things that are very hard then you know maybe it's more wishful thinking than true hope so I I hope that the stories communicate um, you know not not some illusory hope or wishful thinking but that that real ordinary people in an ordinary small under-resourced church can 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 bear witness to the hope of the gospel that it can really transform lives one by one and together and create transformation in our communities and and ripple out yeah, well, Reverend Newmark, I think you're doing a great job. Um, your stories from your church have really been inspiration to me. Um, I see I see this book as being an inspiration to a lot of small churches because there are a lot of churches uh, that feel, you know, I'm, I, I don't have enough resources, I don't have enough volunteers, uh, I don't have the financial capabilities to do, you know, Whatever, whatever the challenge might be, and I think your book shows that when we really become a part of the community in which our in which our church, when the church building becomes a part of the church community, becomes a part of the the larger, and that church community becomes a part of the larger community, uh, it really shows how transformative. Um, the church can be to the culture and to the world and uh, to see that modeled by by your church through this book uh, is a very inspirational thing uh, so again the the book is uh, sanctuary um, uh, being Christian in the wake of Trump uh, the author is Reverend Heidi Newmark uh, Heidi I want to thank you for your time today thank you thank you for the invitation <laughs>